Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include nationwide housing listings, my interview with SPMB's Ross McLaughlin on executive search firms and finding the best candidates for open positions, and the latest house price indexes. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help consumers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at mgic.com boost. Two hydrogen atoms meet. One says, I've lost my electron. The other asks, are you sure? To which the first replies, yes, I'm positive. I know, it's cutting-edge humor like that that keeps you coming back. Do positive thoughts matter? Thinking positive thoughts about the housing inventory in the United States probably won't help. And I'm hearing renewed stories about a lack of inventory and multiple offers at certain price points around the nation. There are only 578,000 active listings nationwide out of about 142 million housing units. So where's the supply? Well, what do American Homes for Rent, Home Partners of America slash Blackstone, Tricont Residential, Main Street Renewal, Progress Residential, Invitation Homes, and a smattering of others have in common? They've accumulated more than 65,000 homes in the Atlanta area alone. I saw an article titled, the American dream for rent. Given that so much of our lives are dictated by supply and demand, well, you get the picture, and many think it isn't pretty. For a link to those stories, as well as the latest employment opportunities and lender and vendor products and services, visit robchrisman.com. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show SPMB's Ross McLaughlin to talk about executive search firms and finding the best candidates for open positions. He joined SPMB in 2015 and was a key driver in building the firm's consumer practices, which he co-leads today. He successfully led over 50 C and VP level searches for early growth stage and recently IPO'd organizations. His expertise in consumer spans marketplaces, fintech, consumer electronics, consumer products, gaming, tech-enabled services, e-commerce, manufacturing, digital health, and field operations. Ross spends his time leading operations and go-to-market searches. So you work for SPMB. Can you explain the role of an executive search firm? Yeah, I'd say it's um, it's threefold. Um, you know, one search firm should serve as a, a consultant to their clients, right? It starts with, you know, really understanding the client's business and the problem that they're trying to solve through an executive hire. Um, I'd say the first step here is really just advising clients on how they should scope and and frame the role, um, identifying key deliverables to create a scorecard, if you will, and then to formulate um, a search strategy with regards to, you know, what are the target companies and verticals that we're going to go after that we think are going to yield this type of talent and experience. Um, and really, I think before a search even begins, driving alignment around that is critical to making sure that things are are set up for success. Um, if you don't put a lot of that work in on the front end, that's where things can really go awry and you end up with a much longer search with a disconnect between the reality of the market um, and how your client's thinking about things. Um, you know, the second from there is really to run, 
you know, an end-to-end search process on on behalf of the client. It includes everything from candidate, you know, development and, and recruiting to assessment to candidate management as they're flowing through um, the process, referencing once they approach a finalist stage or even before that. Um, and then of course, you know, offer negotiation and and getting a finalist over the line. Um, I'd also say, you know, as the, the search goes on and, and things develop, um, search firms should be continue to be consultative to their clients and advise them on maybe tweaks in their interview process or how they're assessing candidates, um, you know, or even changing the the scope or or spec of the role if it becomes clear that maybe there's a misalignment between the market, um, which could include factors like compensation, you know, actual skill sets of, of executives in the landscape or, or any other component of search strategy, um, and also to take their, their clients' feedback um, and plug that into to their research and outreach loop, right? So that if it's not, right, the bullseye to begin with, ideally you're getting there in, in short order after, you know, first couple of candidates go through. And then the final one I'd say is just to, to really serve as a, a partner to the candidate community. Um, you know, search firm's core responsibility in the day-to-day of the search is always doing the best work possible and serving their clients in the best way that they can. Um, but relationships with candidates are so critical to a firm's access and ability to deliver the best of the best to their clients. And so serving as an advisor to the candidate community is is just really important so that they pick up the phone, right? And, and that includes everything from you know, talking with them about career development and, and serving as an advisor in that capacity, advising them on compensation trends or even just general market intel on certain companies that they might be talking to. Um, that really, you know, creates a, a deeper relationship and moves you away from, you know, just someone who helps you find a job, right, um, to more of, you know, just a long-term part of your network. Um, so that's that's really critical to getting to candidates, assuming they're very well ensconced and happy in their their current role. Can you explain why companies choose to use a firm versus doing this in-house? I mean, some thoughts that come to mind for me would be secrecy, not secrecy, but, um, you know, kind of keeping a low profile or, and obviously your expertise in conducting searches. What What's your take on, on why they would choose a company like SPMB? Yeah, confidentiality can certainly be one. And, you know, maybe that's a situation where, unfortunately, a, a client is having to, you know, replace an existing executive um, due to performance or, or something of that nature, um, or they're launching a new business and they don't want the market to know about it quite yet. Um, that That's certainly a reason why we'll get retained. Um, I'd say much more generally speaking, um, it's because in-house recruiting for, or in-house recruiting teams or recruiters just have too much going on from an open rec standpoint. I mean, they might be juggling anywhere from, from 12 to 20 at a time. And one person just frankly doesn't have the bandwidth to, to drive you know, an end-to-end true executive recruiting process. Um, when clients retain our firm, you know, we typically have four people working on the search. That includes a partner like myself, a candidate developer who's helping with recruiting and outreach, a research analyst who's breaking down all of the target markets um, that our clients are interested in, and then, you know, project coordinator who helps with all things scheduling. Um, and so, you know, that's just a, a very, you know, high intensity effort and you get four dedicated resources on one role as opposed to having, you know, 10% of someone's bandwidth on your in-house team, right? You know, it also allows us to be very hands-on and in the weeds with our clients. You know, our partners don't take on, a, you know, a large number of searches. It's only five or six at a time. And so they really get our full attention um, and access to the right types of candidates in a much shorter time frame than they would, 
uh, working within an in-house resource. Um, you know, the second thing I'd say is, you know, it's a situation where a company is trying to enter a market that they aren't intimately familiar with or don't have access to. Um, for example, we built out, you know, most of the technology team for Disney streaming service when they were launching that. Um, and of course, Disney, you know, large global Fortune 500 company has a super strong executive recruiting team in-house, um, but they didn't have access to product technology and data leaders that they wanted to hire to really build out that side of their business. And so we were able to provide them access to a market that that they were entering. So I think it's it's generally speaking those two reasons. It's they need more horsepower and maybe they've tried it on their own um, and it's not working out just due to bandwidth or it's a market they aren't familiar with and don't understand and they need both an advisor and a team to, to help them access that. Um, and confidentiality can fit into either one of those those situations I just described. And I, I guess I'm slightly uninformed here because I don't know if you deliver one candidate recommendation or multiple candidate recommendations, but I, I guess I will ask you, how do you weigh organizational fit of a candidate versus overall competency? Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, it's always a large and diverse slate of candidates, right? Um, I think our on our average project, our average cycle time as a firm is about 110 days from start to close. And I think we usually present anywhere from eight to 12 candidates on, on each search on average. Some of them go much longer. And of course, there's more in that situation. Sometimes, you know, a client will hire one of the first, um, you know, two to three people they meet. And so it, it really just depends in that regard. I think with new clients, there's always a period of just getting to know them right and understanding fit um, and you know what's going to work with their culture, what type of people they like to hire. Um, generally speaking, when we're presenting a, a candidate to to the client, they're going to be highly competent, right? They're going to come from you know some of the best of the best of um, you know companies from the sector that our clients are interested in, and so generally speaking, the you know competency is and fit from a skill set standpoint is going to be there. And it can become more of on our, you know, up to our clients to to really assess a fit um, as far as how's this person going to work with the rest of my team. And you have to get into that a little bit with um, with just the, you know, client's team and, and those meetings. I would say after we've gone through one or two of those, we can really start to pick up on, um, you know, what works for a certain client. Like, for example, I'm working with um, a real estate marketplace in Canada right now. Um, and there were a couple of candidates um, that were here in the U.S. that just had a very sort of U.S.-centric way of thinking about things um, and pretty quickly realized, OK, you know, the right kind of organizational fit here is probably going to be someone who's worked in a global company and is really going to seek to understand um, different points of view around the table versus just applying what they've done in, in other companies and, and applying it in this new one. And so it's nuanced and it changes from client to client. But after we go through you know, one or two candidate meetings, I think we're able to pick up on on the organizational fit um, and can layer that into our assessment and points of view on candidates. Well, I guess I'll ask you a personal question then when it comes to these searches. What makes one candidate stand out versus another in your mind? Yeah, I think um, in the current market dynamic, uh, this is a, a really important one. Um, you know, we serve a lot of companies in the technology space, and there's a major trend around doing more with less, right? Um, that includes, you know, both budget and resources, but also, you know, with people and teams. And so I think the thing I would advise people to, to really focus on in an interview process 
right now in the market is really tying their experience to, you know, data and, you know, areas they move the ball forward in, whether it be, you know, as far as, you know, whether it be revenue growth or, you know, increasing profitability or efficiency, right? Just talking about those pieces of their experience and background versus, you know, I built a hundred person team or, you know, I have this many direct reports. Um, management skills are, are critical to any executive, right? But um, I would just advise folks to spend less time on that and more on you know, what actually happened in the business and in the current market. Well, now I'm going to ask you a question that I really care about. Um, care about for me. What's the best way for someone to negotiate higher starting compensation? Obviously, companies will give you a, a range, target range, most likely. But uh, how do you max that out as a candidate? Yeah, this may this may feel um, contradictory to a lot of folks. I would um, I would always be very open and and transparent about your expectations, um, whether it be with the recruiter or with the hiring manager. Um, sometimes people will think that's putting you know putting them in the box, and they might be limiting their their potential compensation. But I actually think it gives you a much stronger you know point of negotiation and and playing field. For example, if you're really happy in the role you're in today. You know, and you want to share your expectations, you could say, hey, I am not going to make a move for less than this. And so at least you've set the groundwork and you make them understand like, okay, this is where we're going to need to be to get Robbie really excited. Um, I think where people can run into trouble is when they don't share any information um, and the recruiter or the company is flying blind a little bit. And they're not going to be able to really get a sense of of what's going to get you excited. And so I think that um, you know having trust and, and partnership with whoever your main point of contact is is really critical to you know ultimately get an offer that you're going to be excited about. Um, you know, and that's going to work out for for the company, right? That's that's what I advise. I'd also advise people to think um, more about total compensation than just salary and bonus right now. This is going to be, you know, company dependent, but um, just in the current climate, I think companies giving you more equity um, versus cash compensation is is a much easier trade off for them to make as the market's really shifting towards you know, prioritizing profitability versus growth. Um, so that's why I'd share on comp. So I want to close by asking you a very qualitative question here, and, and that's what have you learned about people during your time conducting searches? Um, it's, it's funny to think about this. I think that the biggest thing, and this might sound so basic, is just that whether it's a CEO or a board member or um, individual contributor on a team, all people are just people, no matter which layer of an organization they sit in um, at a company. And so everyone comes with their strengths, with their quirks. Um, everyone's fallible, right? Um, I think we can build up, you know, particularly from the media, these images of of superheroes at the CEO and board level, but um, you know, once you spend enough time with enough of them, you realize that while they are amazing and highly talented, they're they're all humans at at their core, um, and that comes with everything that that you get in the human experience. And so, um, I think it's a, a good reminder to everyone when you know meeting with a CEO or um, you know a board member or anyone at a very senior level in an organization, just remember that you know they're going every going through everything you're going through, whether it's having a great week or um, going through, you know, a rough time in their life, just try to keep that in the back of your head and, and don't let that title influence how you engage with them and, and treat them in any way. It's an excellent point. Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. Can't forget yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I want to thank you very much for making the time today. I thought this was great. Good catching up with you and uh, hopefully I'll see you out there soon. Yeah. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks so much for having me. 
Following the conclusion of yesterday's testimonies from Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Barr and FDIC Chair Gurenberg before the Senate Banking Committee on the recently failed banks, the yield curve flattened on concerns the FDIC could decide to liquidate the failed bank's securities holdings, which are mostly mortgage-backed securities. That's not good news for lenders who produce loans that go into securities backed by mortgages. In terms of economic releases, the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index for March beat expectations, even though the survey period covered the week after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. The S&B Case-Shiller Home Price Index was up 2.5% year-over-year in January, after being up 4.6% in December, while the FHFA Housing Price Index rose 0.2% in January, after decreasing 0.1% in December. Today's economic calendar kicked off with mortgage applications from MBA, which increased 2.9% from a week earlier. Later this morning brings the pending home sales index for February, treasury auction of $35 billion of seven-year notes, and remarks from Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Barr. We begin the day with agency MBS prices roughly unchanged from yesterday and the 10-year yielding 3.54% after closing yesterday at 3.56%. The two-year sits at 4.02%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. A friend of mine plays piano in a local restaurant. One night, I listened to him play Send in the Clowns, one of my favorite songs. As he finished, a woman approached him. Can you play Send in the Clowns, she asked. To which my friend shook his head sadly and replied, apparently not. Oh, it's a sad joke. (laughs) Thanks again to MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help customers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at mgic.com boost. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.